Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an order, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe, and that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Good morning. What a passage, huh? What would you consider your greatest, the greatest accomplishment of your life? Give that some thought. I'm going to ask it two different ways. Same thing from another angle. What have you done that you're most likely to be remembered for one way or the other? Or one more time, what do you still hope to accomplish that will continue on after you die? Prior to the events described in this passage, Jesus' teaching and miracles set him apart in awesome and unmistakable and unparalleled ways. To this point in his life and ministry, he'd done things no one else had ever done. In this passage, however, he was able to demonstrate and display the glory of God in greater ways still than ever before. He caused a four-day dead man, an all-dead man, if you were here last week, to come alive. Even if the story of Jesus' life ended after the events of this passage, which of course, and more gloriously still, it doesn't, but even if it did, it would be the most spectacular story of all time. I'm not sure how you answered my initial questions. What? What have you accomplished so far in life, or what do you hope yet to do? But I'm confident it is not this. Jesus is greater than you are. I hope that's not news. None of them could have come close to what Jesus did here. Jesus is glorious beyond measure, Grace Church, and we get to see a bit more of that this morning. Well, one of the keys to seeing the fullness of the glory revealed in this passage on the way to seeing the glory revealed most fully of all on the cross in his own empty tomb is in recognizing that Lazarus's resurrection didn't come out of nowhere. As we'll see, God repeatedly promised that the dead would rise. We'll even see a few examples of this in the Old and New Testaments. And at the same time, we will also see that the resurrection of Lazarus is different from all that had come before. Jesus did this. He raised them in a different way for three main reasons. And I'll come back to these two more times. But here are the three main reasons. It was the strongest piece of evidence yet that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was from the Father and would do what he said he would do. Second, to provide a picture of what awaits all who join Martha in believing that Jesus is the Christ. And third, 
most significantly, as we make our way th- into the Passion Week in John's Gospel to usher in his time. Finally, his time had come. The big idea of this passage is that if, is that if you believe in the resurrected and resurrecting Jesus, you will see the glory of God in greater ways even than this. And the big takeaway is that you and I would live as those who will be raised from the dead. Come back to that as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the glory that you revealed to Martha and to the Jews who were with her. Thank you for the glory that you revealed to us, both in this and where this is going, in Jesus and in our lives. I pray, God, that we would not be okay being okay with this passage. I pray that we would be stirred, that we would recognize that to believe this is to be stirred, and that if we don't find ourselves stirred already, that we would pray and ask the Spirit. And so I pray now and ask the Spirit to stir us appropriately this morning. Help us to realize that these are not normal things. This is not something we see every day, that there is a display of glory here that is uncommon and supernatural and ought to shape everything about how we think and feel in relation to God, who is the King of glory. This is the King of glory. Let us look to him. Let us believe in him and trust him that we may come in and hear these same words that Lazarus heard now and in in eternity. I pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So this is, if you're just joining us, our third week in John 11 with one more to go. It is the story of three siblings whom Jesus dearly loved. One of them, at the beginning of the story, Lazarus, was deathly ill. Because of that, the other two, his sisters, Mary and Martha, called on Jesus that he might heal their brother before he came succumbed to this sickness. Before Jesus got there, however, he received word from them, but before he got there, Lazarus died. He came, nevertheless, and upon his arrival, the sisters were undoubtedly, we saw last week, distraught, or understandably distraught. But Jesus quickly reassured them that something remarkable was about to take place. In fact, Jesus promised Martha that Lazarus, her brother, would raise from the dead. Well, rather than provide the comfort that it should have, and Jesus meant it to, Martha misunderstood Jesus and sort of brushed brushed aside this glorious promise. She said to Jesus, I know, I know he'll rise on the last day. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But what she really wanted was her brother back now. And it seemed to her as if Jesus was not offering that. Jesus corrected her. I am. I meant that he'll, he'll come back. But in her misunderstanding, she revealed something significant that I really want you to get. Even feel. She, she revealed her foundational belief that there would be some type of eschatological resurrection for the people of God. Some resurrection on resurrection day for those who hoped in God. She had no doubt that one day Lazarus would rise along with all believers. But the question for us is, where did that belief come from? What made her think that? Where did that idea come from? Isn't that a later thing that Paul would describe in the New Testament and others? I want you to see two things about this, and we'll begin in the Old Testament. Jesus' words in Matthew 22. 
That's the New Testament. We're going to use that to get us to the Old Testament. Jesus' words in Matthew 22 and John 20 both indicate that Martha's resurrection conviction was rooted in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. In Matthew 22, Jesus was confronted by the Sadducees with a question they considered to be unanswerable. And in his answer of their unanswerable question, Matthew twenty two thirty one, Jesus said, And as for the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God in the scriptures? What was that? Verse 33. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And so Jesus said, he is not the God of the living. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so with these words, Jesus taught that the Sadducees were mistaken in denying the resurrection. If God is, not was, still is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then although they died, they must still be alive, having experienced some type of resurrection. Likewise, in John 20, we'll come to this later, but in verses 8 and 9, Jesus explained that the resurrection, his resurrection, was promised in the scripture. Then the other disciple whom who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as of yet, they did not understand the scripture. What's that? What scripture that he, that is Jesus must rise from the dead. John taught that the scripture taught that Jesus would rise. And so that Jesus and John and others actually believed that the scriptures taught a general resurrection for God's people. And specifically that Jesus would rise is clear. What might not be as clear is what scriptures are those? What scriptures is he referring to wherein the resurrection is taught? Where does the Old Test where in the Old Testament do we find teaching on the resurrection? The beginning of that answer, or the answer to that question, is found almost all the way back at the beginning. In Genesis twenty two, we're told that Abraham believed that God was able to raise the dead. We're not sure how we knew this. It doesn't tell us how he knew this or why he believed this, just that he did. Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19 tells us that explicitly. It tells us that Abraham considered, as he was about to offer his son Isaac in obedience as a sacrifice, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise his son Isaac from the dead. It's almost back in the very beginning of the Bible. At the very start, there is this idea among God's people that God will raise his people from the dead. But that's not it. It goes on. Similarly, in Job 19, we read that Job believed that he would rise as well. For I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. David believed this too in Psalm 16, 9 and 10, and other psalms like it. Many others. He wrote, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see see corruption. What's clear from the Psalm is that David believed in his own resurrection. But what's more, we know from Acts 13, this is ultimately a promise of Jesus' resurrection. Isaiah prophesied, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Likewise, in one of the clearest passages yet, Daniel 12, 1 and 2, we read, But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. 
And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Jesus confirmed that this is the right reading of this passage in John 5. We saw that earlier in Acts 24. And Ezekiel was told by God in chapter 37, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. It's all over. These are just some. It's also in Isaiah 49 and 71. In addition, there are at least two places in the Old Testament where a type of resurrection actually took place already. Both Elijah and Elisha have been the means, were the means by which God raised an individual from the dead. In 1 Kings 17, we read of a woman whose son became ill and eventually died. Elijah said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. Elijah's protege, Elisha, experienced something very similar according to the resurrecting power of God. You can read about that in 2 Kings 4. There are other Old Testament passages that teach similar things. But I hoped to have shown you enough to convince you that the scriptures did, in fact, repeatedly and consistently teach the resurrection from the dead for the people of God. That is, I hope it's easy for you to see that Jesus' words ring true in Matthew 22 and in John 20 and Martha's conviction that I know my brother will rise on the resurrection day were all well-founded. What's more, I hope this brief look at these passages helps you to grow in confidence that the scripture always holds true grace, always. Where you find a promise of God of something to come, it is as certain as that which has already taken place. It has been the fool's. I know this personally because I lived apart from faith in Christ for some time, but it has been the fool's and the devil's errand since the beginning to try to poke holes in the promises of God. May you find fresh encouragement this morning as we watch this resurrection pointing to the resurrection, pointing to our resurrection. As you watch the complete trustworthiness of God unfold, of his word, therein find fresh motivation to read your Bibles thoroughly and prayerfully and corporately with the people of God and consistently and practically looking to live in light of them in all that you do. Again, while it is clear that Mary and Martha were not expecting Jesus to do what he did exactly, it is clear that God had promised and displayed his power over death and promised a future eternal resurrection for all of his people. Their belief in their brother's resurrection was well-founded. Far from merely an Old Testament concept, though, as you know, we find resurrection to be a significant teaching in the New Testament as well. I encourage you to go to the manuscript later today or tomorrow and look these up. But 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Peter 1 and Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 6 and Revelation 20 are among the many New Testament passages that speak to the resurrection of Jesus and its benefits for us, including our own resurrection from the dead as well. More still, as was the case in the Old Testament, there are other examples of resurrection in the New Testament, too. Jesus caused Jairus' daughter to rise in Matthew 9. Though unlike Lazarus, this will become important in just a minute, he, he strictly forbid anyone from telling about it. And in Acts 20, 
9 and 10, we read of Paul raising a man named Eutychus from the dead as well by the power of God. All, all of these New Testament passages are beyond the scope of the sermon. John's gospel is not. And in John's gospel, we find three key resurrection categories and passages. Lazarus, which we'll look at first, and Jesus, of course, and then all Christians. Everything we've considered so far in John chapter 11 and in this sermon this morning are meant to set the proper backdrop for this passage. In it, we're shown the resurrection of Jesus' beloved friend. And in that, once again, Jesus accomplished three main things. He provided the strongest piece of evidence yet for who he was, a small picture, which I hope to help you see, of what awaits all Christians, what makes us Christians, and ushered in his time. At the end of our passage from last week, we read that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That meant he was sad and even a bit angry. Our passage for this morning opens by telling us that this was the case once again. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved yet again, came to the tomb, the tomb of Lazarus, a cave and a stone lay against it, foreshadowing his own grave. Jesus was deeply sad and indignant. He grieved that death was there. Death was not God's design for the world. And and so he grieved that there was death and that his friend had experienced it and the unbelief of the children of God, which is why he says, did I not tell you? You shouldn't be surprised by this. There's a measure of unbelief in them still. These things caused him to make his way to Lazarus's tomb. Standing there before the cave, the significance of the fact that he had been dead for four days was recharged. It was significant. And that according to Jewish tradition, again, on the fourth day, it meant that there was simply no hope that he might be healed or raised. This was one of the things that set his resurrection apart from all the rest that had come before. It was also significant, Martha tells us, in that it meant certain biological or physiological aspects of death had kicked in or would have. For that reason, Jesus, when Jesus commanded to take the stone away, or for that reason, Jesus' command to do that was shocking and somewhat distasteful in the minds of the women. That's the heart of the exchange between Jesus and Martha in verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there's going to be an odor, for he has been dead four days. doesn't take a lot of imagination to get our minds around Martha's concern. After that long, the body would start to decay to the point where it would have ordinarily been very unpleasant to open the tomb. Even though there was a misunderstanding, and even though there was some measure of doubt that remained among the sisters as to the trustworthiness of Jesus, and certainly, as we'll see among their fellow, fellow mourners, their faith was stronger than their disbelief. Therefore, despite their best judgment, when Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Martha was evidently in charge, relented, and called for Jesus' command to be obeyed. So they took away the stone, it says. At that point, John records Jesus going to his father in prayer. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have heard me. It's already been done. He knows that. It's already been done. I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always 
hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The heart of Jesus' prayer is twofold, Grace. Let us learn from it, both. First, he thanked the Father for their perfect fellowship and unity. That is an echo of what he'd already prayed and said in chapter 5 and chapter 10. He and the Father are one, and therefore eternally of one mind. It is, and this is a sweet picture of the fellowship that is ours with the Father through Jesus as well, Grace. Because of Jesus, God hears us whenever we pray. Do you believe that? When you pray, do you know that? Do you fight to remain conscious that he hears you? He he hears everything you say. He's eager to hear from you. Do you believe that? Just as he was eager to hear from Jesus, his son, when you and I pray in Jesus' name, he's eager to hear from us as well. Not to receive new information from us. We're from heaven. He's getting the daily news from you and from all of us. Not to receive new information, but as an expression of your faith in him, your your trust in him, your love for him, your dependence upon him, your desire to be with him. And as a part of your growing fellowship with him, take everything to God in prayer, Grace, everything. He delights to hear you every single time. That's awesome. The second key aspect of Jesus' prayer was his desire for those present, those standing around. I love that. It makes it sound like... I don't know what it makes it sound like, but they're just hanging out. For those standing around, he he prayed that they would hear. He prayed out loud that they would hear, witness the miracle that was about to take place, and therein know even still that Jesus was truly from God. While many still doubted, Jesus prayed and acted in such a way as to remove, and hear this, every earthly obstacle to disbelief. Part of Jesus' ministry on earth was to remove every earthly obstacle of disbelief. This is an important application for you and I today as well. It is good and right of us to follow Jesus' example in doing what we can to answer questions of skeptics. Peter said it this way, Peter who undoubtedly was here with Jesus, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Grace, are you hoping in Jesus? Is your hope in the risen Lord? Is your trust in Christ? If so, always be prepared to give a reason for that hope. Why are you hoping in him when so many others don't? The the fancy term for this is apologetics. It means a defense of. We ought to be able to help people who struggle with the claims of Christianity to understand them better. And if that is not something you are necessarily gifted in, get a friend who is and introduce those people with one another. Likewise, and, and this is a big deal, Peter, as Peter went on to say in the next verse, we ought also to live in a manner consistent with the gospel. Both our words and our explanation of the hard things of God and the way we live should testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. Our lives ought to be lived in a manner where somebody will look at them and say, whoa, I, I knew Dave before. He's not like he was. He's changed. Something is different. There's there's something that has happened to him that is very different from the guy I knew in the mid-90s. Our lives ought to testify to the truthfulness and transforming power of the gospel. If you need help knowing where to start with either of these and how to give a defense to some skeptic in your life or how to live more faithfully, talk, talk to us. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to someone. We can help. And yet, as we'll see next week, Grace, get this also. 
We need to join Jesus in doing everything we can to remove every earthly obstacle from those who would believe in Jesus. But as we'll see next week, removing every earthly obstacle is never enough because our greatest obstacles aren't earthly. We can prove the reasonableness of Christianity beyond the sh- beyond a shadow of a doubt. But apart from heavenly grace, it's still not going to be enough. I got to watch more than once as one, some several of the most brilliant minds alive today debated unbelievers. Got to be there for a couple of these and, and watch them answer every objection carefully and scripturally in ways that were logically and philosophically sound. And the unbeliever was entirely unmoved. I've watched as others just say, that just sounds dumb. <laughs> they, they didn't think really hard about it. They, it didn't, they weren't responding to some remarkable presentation, just a simple presentation of the gospel. And all they could think of was, that sounds dumb. And everything in between. The point is, removing every earthly obstacle is not enough. If Jesus' teaching, prayer, miracle, his own resurrection from the dead were not enough to convince the unbelievers who were standing around then we should not be surprised to find out there's nothing you and I can do all by ourselves to allow people to see God's glory either. It doesn't change our charge, but it does properly ground our hope, not in our own persuasive abilities, but in the sovereign grace of God. And so with that, verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out his hands and feet still bound with the linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is simple, but profound. Do you see this? It feels like there should be a chorus of angels and trumpets. And it's just so simple. It's just so straightforward. The dead came back to life in three sentences. It doesn't seem like it should be like that, does it, Grace? But don't miss this. Listen to me carefully as I tell you what you already know. Lazarus was dead. He had been dead for four days to the point that he should have stunk. He was all dead. Jesus prayed to his father, and through the resurrecting power of God, this four-day dead man came alive. That's simple, but it's awesome. (laughs) It's not normal. Kids, you should write that down as your note for today. The dead coming back to life after four days is not normal. It doesn't usually work like that. This is a miracle, this is a miracle of the most remarkable kind. Praise God for this grace, church. I prayed this earlier and said this earlier. Don't be content being unmoved by the power of God over death. Don't be content with that. Be moved by this. But here's something I, I love. I'm so thankful to God for this. What's more, what we have here is a picture. Get this, Grace. What we have in Lazarus, in Jesus' words, in God's response to his prayers, what we have here is a picture of every conversion that has ever happened. You and I, as Mark helped us to see plainly in Berea this morning, are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born at enmity, as enemies of God. If you are a Christian, this is what happened to you. Because Jesus rose from the dead, which we'll come back to in a minute, defeating sin and death, at some point when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God said to you, Billy, come out. Sally, come out. 
Susie, come out. Paul, come out. Come out of your spiritual death and darkness and into my light and life. That's what conversion is. First Peter 1.3 says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the great mercy that has caused us to be born again, to come out through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Grace Church, this is a picture of Jesus' resurrection, which is to come, which is a picture of our resurrection, which is to come, but it is also a picture of every conversion that has ever taken place. More than that, as you did, as as you came out in faith, as you were caused by the sovereign grace of God to be born again, that you might believe in Jesus and be reconciled to God and be given newness of life, as you did, Jesus also said something to you that he said to Lazarus. He said to the world and to your flesh and to the devil, unbind him and let him go. Come out of your sin and rebellion and into my righteousness and freedom. Now that you are in my life and light, come into out of your sin and rebellion and into my righteousness and freedom. Come out of your blindness and confusion and into my truth and my sight. Come and be made alive and be made holy. This is Paul in Romans 6. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so that we too might walk in newness of life. Unbind him and let him go, sin. Unbind him and let him go, flesh. Unbind him and let him go, world. Lazarus' physical resurrection is a picture of true conversion. The spiritual resurrection, a regeneration that takes place when everyone, when, whenever someone comes to faith in Jesus, that is glorious indeed. Jesus called Lazarus back from the dead, but unlike when he caused Jairus' daughter to rise, Jesus gave no indication for the witnesses not to tell others. In fact, as we saw last week, Jesus waited long enough to allow a large enough crowd to gather so that it could not be walked back, for his time had finally come. I told you that there are three main resurrection categories in John's gospel. We just saw the first, and that's the main one I want to show you this morning in Lazarus. The second, but far more significant, is the resurrection of Jesus, as you know. Of this, I simply want to point out two things. First, two weeks ago in John 11, 25 and 26, we saw Jesus claim to be the means by which God's resurrection power would come into the world. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We simply cannot miss or be unaffected by this. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the means by which we are saved, and we gain access to that, not by performing well enough to earn it, but by believing that Jesus already did. So believe in Jesus today, once again, Grace, and you shall never die. That's the first thing John's Gospel tells us about the resurrection of Jesus. Second, Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life was ultimately proven true and accomplished in his own resurrection, which we'll come to at the beginning of chapter 20. It was in his own resurrection from the dead that all of his teaching was vindicated and his power was unleashed. Obviously, we'll unpack that in much greater detail as we move to the resurrection in John. But for now, know that Jesus could raise Lazarus and you and me and all who would call upon his name from the dead because he rose from the dead.
Finally, in John's Gospel, we are taught that because of Jesus' resurrection, at Jesus' return, all who hope in him will have our bodies raised and reunited with our souls to live forever with Jesus and all of the saints in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus explicitly taught that all Christians will be raised from the dead into the Father's heavenly home, where we will dwell together, as you hear every Sunday, as his beloved sons and daughters. In John 14, we'll get to that in a bit. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God. Grace, are your hearts troubled? Let them not be troubled. Believe instead in God, instead of whatever is troubling your heart. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? No. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We will rise, Grace. We too will be resurrected on the last day. A significant portion of the glory Jesus promised to Martha. Remember, he said, I told you that if you believed, you would see glory. She did, and just a Just a minute ago, she saw her brother raised from the dead. But Jesus had a greater glory in mind still. A significant portion of the glory that Jesus promised Martha she would see for believing in him was that she would and we will be glorified like him. The question this puts before us, as I get to the end of the sermon, is whether or not we are living like we will be raised from the dead. Are you living as if you will be raised from the dead. How is your life any different from your neighbor, the person who lives next to you, who does not believe in the resurrection? How is your life any different than theirs? Can you name any practical ways that last week your belief in the resurrection affected the way that you lived? Let me suggest a few ways it might. Obey Jesus this week in some area you have been afraid to obey him in. You'll be raised from the dead. So what? Right? Send it. That's not in the manuscript. (laughs) Obey Jesus this week in some area you've been afraid to. Since you will rise from the dead, you need not fear anything but God alone, including death. What's the worst they can do? Tease you? Call you silly pants, kill you. That's just the doorway to eternal life for you. Share the gospel with that person you've been avoiding. Have that conversation that has seemed too hard for the glory of God. Act on that promise that will leave you in deep trouble if, in fact, Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Find second, find some way to artistically communicate this. The things that I say, I I hope the Spirit is pleased to stir your affections for the glory of God. But God gave us art and music and pictures and images, and he gave that especially to stir us emotionally. Find a way to do that. And one of the things that came to my mind was something, a song, a poem, a, a painting, a picture, something that will provide the contrast between the resurrection life that Jesus has promised and the everlasting death that we deserve. And so what makes this resurrection so profound is the stink, the odor that is there. Find a way to help people see and appreciate and feel the contrast between those who arise with Christ and those who arise apart from Christ. Help people to feel the beauty and the terror of the resurrection somehow. That's a way to live differently. One more. Change one of your life's goals or come up with a new one. 
If there's no resurrection, it makes sense to give yourself to eating and drinking and being merry, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, it makes sense to give your life to pursuing pleasures of this earth and comfort, gaining as much comfort and ease as possible. How much of your life would be described as pursuing comfort and ease compared to living in light of the resurrection? But but living differently in light of the resurrection means that we aim at different things than those who don't. Make it your ambition to share the gospel with everyone that lives within a half mile of you. Get a Google map deal, circle all the houses, and one at a time, share the gospel with everyone who lives within a half mile. It's easy for us because it's like six people, but if you live in a neighborhood, go for it. Make it your aim to give 25 or 50 or maybe 75% of your money away to causes directly related to bringing the gospel to places that it isn't. Make it your goal to pray every day for your kids and the kids in your DG that they might believe in Jesus and share in his resurrection. Because the resurrection is true, determine in the Spirit's power to engage. Remember, it's, it's true. Live differently. Have a different aim. Determine in the Spirit's power to engage in your civil authorities in a manner that is unashamed of the gospel and the resurrection hope that it brings. Determine not to miss church once in 2024, either here or if you're on vacation somewhere, because it is the greatest practice we have of our eternal resurrection. God means this, this gathering of the saints and the unity of singing, the oneness of heart, around the gospel, to be practiced for the new heavens and the new earth. This is as close as we come on earth. So determines that what a, what a goal that would be. Don't miss church once in 2024, here or wherever you are, because of the resurrection. Again, Lazarus is a picture of this and a preparation for Jesus' imminent resurrection and ours. And that's awesome. So in conclusion, I want to land the plane, bring you back to something I've mentioned twice already. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in a unique way in order primarily to accomplish three things. To provide the strongest piece of evidence yet that he was who he said he was and would accomplish what he said he would accomplish. To provide a small picture of what awaits Christians and to usher in his time. I hope to have helped you to see each of those. To the first, we'll see next week that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And that the Pharisees worried that if we let him go on like this, you know, raising people from the dead, (laughs) if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. No kidding. (laughs) And they thought that was a bad idea. That just shows you the sinfulness of our sin. We laugh at them, but we act that way every day. Jesus, once again, continued to remove every earthly obstacle to belief in him that all the Father had given him might believe in him. To the second We saw this morning that if our hope is in Jesus, we've already experienced something very similar to Lazarus's resurrection. Come out, be unbound, walk freely. And we will experience it one day in fullness. It is a picture of our conversion and it is a picture of our glorification, body and spirit. Lazarus provides a picture of our regeneration and future resurrection. And to the third, to usher in his time, we're going to see this Next week, beginning next week. To the third, Jesus rose Lazarus at this time because his time had finally come. Jesus, therefore, it says in verse 54, 
Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews. And, verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. With the Passover at hand, Jesus would return to Jerusalem and usher in, largely because of this event and the crowd that would spread and the word that would build to fever pitch the new covenant in his blood. Everything is quickly coming to a head. We had 11 chapters leading up to this. The remaining chapters are everything coming to a head in Jesus' life and ministry. Grace, may the Spirit continue to open our eyes to the truth and glory of who Jesus is and what he's done to rescue us from sin and death and bring us into the kingdom of God. And may we live increasingly in light of these glorious things for the glory of God, the resurrected one, our Lord Jesus Christ.